please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, continuing on in our exposition of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 6, we'll be picking up in verse 35 and going through verse 44. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we thank Thee, O Lord, for the opportunity to worship here. We ask for Thy help, Holy Spirit. Our triune covenant God, we submit ourselves to Thee. We bow before thee in reverence. We sing hallelujah. We know that thou art holy and worthy of our praises. Mm -hmm. That thou art coming quickly to redeem thy church. To judge the wicked. Lord, we know that the nations do rage against thee. But in their calamity, thou dost laugh. Thou frustratest all the plans of the wicked and of the wicked one, our adversary, the devil. The Lord rebukes Satan. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to thy word, to come humbly and receive what thou hast for us. Apply it to our hearts, O Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, may we come to see thee more clearly as our all-powerful Lord, our covenant God, the one who has reconciled us to thyself, that now we can call thy Father our Father, that now we can be empowered by the same Spirit with which thou wast empowered. Innumerable, manifold, incalculable, Beyond comprehension are the blessings which thou hast given to us, thy people. Please, Lord, apply the word. Help thou me to preach it accurately, to divide thy word correctly. Apply it to our hearts. Speak to us, O God. Give us ears to hear hearts to feel, minds to comprehend, and hands ready and feet ready to walk it out, live unto thee out of gratitude. We must have more of thee. Even a glimpse, O God. We love thee, O Lord. We ask for thy help and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 6 starting in verse 35, going to the end of verse 44, the feeding of the 5,000. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages 
and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it. Amen. Dear congregation, in our exposition of Mark's gospel, we now come to one of the most famous and well-beloved miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ, the miraculous feeding of the multitude, the 5,000. He does this twice in the gospels. This is the first wherein he feeds 5,000. God himself puts great emphasis on this miracle, doesn't he? For it is one of those acts of Christ, one of the few, that is contained in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The feeding of the 5,000 is to be found. We see that God puts then, therefore, great respect upon it, great emphasis upon it. Now let us recall the context. A, a great multitude has been gathered unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They were desperate. They were longing for spiritual teaching. They'd come out to hear him preach and teach. They also needed physical healing. They were as sheep, not having a shepherd, as we saw in verse 34. And Jesus was then moved with compassion, we read. The same phrase that we saw in Mark 41 for the leper. He was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. In this, he demonstrates his love for them. He begins with the most necessary and the most vital of services that you can render to someone. Namely, religious instruction, teaching doctrine. For we see that Jesus began to teach them Many things. Jesus now, in the text before us this afternoon, turns to caring for their bodies. But as in all of Christ's miracles, we do have warrant also to take them as spiritual allegories, in a sense. Or as signposts. The outward physical realities pointing to the far greater spiritual realities. Christ feeds their bodies. But this confirms the teaching that he had just given him. If we assume that the teaching, he taught them many things, coincided with his teaching in other places. Through this outward physical sign, they are brought to consider spiritual truths through these outward physical things. If Jesus is able to satisfy their bodily hungers, how much more so is he able to meet their spiritual needs? Let's keep that in mind. This miracle, for all who read it, That's why it's beloved. Leaves a lasting impression upon the memories and the hearts of all who read it or hear it. Therefore, in the miracle before us, let us consider, first, absolute proof of our Lord's divine power. Absolute proof of our Lord's divine power. Secondly, our Lord's compassion towards men. Our Lord's compassion toward men. And third, A spiritual emblem of gospel sufficiency. A spiritual emblem of gospel sufficiency. 
First, absolute proof of our Lord's divine power. There is no longer any warrant, as some have proposed throughout the ages and still today, to believe that this great multitude, which was 5,000 men plus the women and children, so likely amounting to something more like 11,000 or 12,000 people total. There's no warrant to believe that this great multitude of 11 or 12,000 people was under some delusion, that they shared a mass hallucination as has been put forward by some people, or that they were under some kind of hypnosis through which Jesus was able to trick them into thinking they were fed, that they were very hungry and now they think that they were fed because they were tricked by this wizard. Hunger is one of the most visceral of human experiences, is it not? Hunger is insatiable. Nothing can disperse the sense of it except its satisf- satisfaction. Nothing can get rid of hunger other than satisfying its need to be filled with food. The multitude would, in no conceivable circumstance, no conceivable circumstance, go away thinking they had been fed and were no longer hungry if they had not actually been fed with physical food. Thus, none but a brainless or a rebellious man could conclude that this miracle did not take place in the exact way that the scriptures say that it did, though many Christian scholars try to make it that way, so-called Christian scholars. Having accepted that this miracle was literal, we may see it, we may see in it, rather, the divine power of our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated in it. If we really believe that he did this and we take it as literal, we see Christ's divine power therein. There were 5,000 men gathered to receive the teachings of Christ. They'd come out to him. He went out to rest after John the Baptist's death. He told his apostles, his disciples, to rest a while after ministry. And we saw this multitude coming from every place, the fields, the villages, the cities, out unto him in this desert place, this isolated place came out to receive the teaching now there's 12,000 people just to hear Jesus preach and teach they had remained with him for at least the entire day maybe longer if he were to send them away to their houses to get food as the disciples propose he do he do they might be harmed and they might faint in the way as Matthew has it the disciples tell Jesus that to feed such a great multitude would require 200 penny worth of bread. In modern times, that would equal about $290, which none of those poor people present could afford. That's too great of a price. No one could have afforded it. Since they cannot afford this steep of a price of $290, Jesus inquires of his disciples what food the multitude did have. What do they have on hand? They answer that amongst the entire multitude of 12,000 people who had come out to hear him preach and teach, There was only five loaves and two fishes, essentially no more than a Lunchable to feed 12,000 people. Now, if we were in that situation, what could we do? There's nothing we could do. Nothing could be done. Hide your snack and try to go home and buy themselves bread. That would be the only thing you could do. They have nothing to eat, but their hunger is still great. Shall their souls be fed and their bodies starve? Jesus would confirm his divine authority in his teaching by demonstrating his divine power and doing what is actually impossible. 
to satisfy the hunger of such a great multitude of people with so small a portion of food as five loaves and two fishes would be manifestly impossible without the supernatural multiplication of the food. Mm. It would be absolutely impossible. This is a clear testimony, a clear proof of Jesus' divine creative power. This was a miracle that no magician, no imposter or false prophet would ever have attempted or could ever have accomplished. We recognize that we do indeed have some clownish men among us, false prophets like Todd White, entire movements of damnable teachers like the New Apostolic Reformation, mega churches, falsely so-called churches like Bethel and Redding, California, that wickedly deceive people by telling them that they could be healed, falsely healing people on stage, Mm. taking a leg, pretending that one is shorter than the other, pretending to heal it, to get people's money, people's hearts. They will feign to cure cancer on stage, these clowns. They'll destroy a family's life, if you recall, a couple years ago by telling them they could raise their infant from the grave. Mm. But none of these imposters, none of these devils would even dare to undertake a miracle like this. Mm. Such a miracle is reserved for our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it. Only the hand which created the world ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, as we read in Genesis, could create a feast for 12,000 people from a snack. Yet, this is the mighty work which our Lord actually did perform. He actually did perform it. And by performing it, he gave conclusive proof that what? He was God among us. Here, Jesus called that into being, which did not before exist. He provided visible, tangible, material food for 12,000 people. Out of a supply which in itself could not even feed 15. Surely we must be blind if we do not see in this the hand of him who provideth food for all flesh, as we read in our call to worship. The one who made the world and all that is therein. Because to create is the peculiar prerogative of God. The scriptures manifestly declare that God alone is the creator of all things, and that the second person of this divine Godhead was he through which all the world was created. With the Bible's opening words, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We turn to the opening of John's gospel, where we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word is later said to be Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the eternal Son of God. God himself manifest in the flesh, as 1 Timothy 3.16 says. We read in John 1.3, all things were made by him, by Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, by him, that is, by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, that are visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
All things were created by him, by Jesus, and for Jesus. The scriptures are manifestly clear. Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Jesus is the God who created the heaven and the earth. Here, in this miracle before us, he demonstrates that. He demonstrates that. He, who by his own power, by his own will, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, now creates sustenance for 12,000 out of some impoverished meal. The unbeliever, the unorthodox, the doubting, shall find little or nothing of value in this miracle. Just a strange story from antiquity. But we who believe shall set it up as a continual memorial stone of remembrance in our minds and in our hearts. A miracle is an act over and above that which naturally occurs in the normal order of things. And thus, a miracle always gives evidence of the omnipotence, that is the all-powerfulness of the one who does them. Hence, God alone, God alone can be the author of true miracles. Let us then, dear believers, cling to Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our God. If we confess that Jesus is our Savior, which we do, if we confess that Jesus is our Savior and that he is God Almighty, guess what? We can confidently profess and trust that our Savior is what? An almighty Savior. Mm -hmm. Jesus is an almighty Savior. Amen? Amen. He will truly save. He will fully save. He will powerfully save all we who trust in him. Amen. When we consider our soul's enemies, our own sin, which clings so closely to us, drags us down to hell, as it were, drags us through, as Bunyan said, the slow of despond and despair, the devil, which prowleth about, firing his fiery darts at us, seeking to destroy us, the world with all of its fleeting lusts, and temptations, which seek to draw us away from our profession, then when we see these enemies, we do have much reason, much cause for fear and trembling, if that's all that we look at. But when we recall, through this and other miracles, all of the miracles, that the keeper, capital K, the keeper of our souls, is the divine and all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ, then... Then, dear believer, we are filled with great comfort and confidence. Our threefold enemy, sin, Satan, the world, has no true power over us, other than the power we freely give to them. For, as the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. The almighty Jesus as Philippians 1.6 says, which hath begun a good work in us, is certainly able to bring it to completion, isn't he? Indeed he is. 
He who performed the miracle of creating a great feast from this small portion is the same one who from our dead and rebellious souls created living sons and daughters for himself. That is the truth. He who performed the miracle of regenerating us shall be the one who will perform the miracle of keeping us, preserving us. This all-powerful Jesus has given unto his people eternal life, and they shall never perish, he says. And he has promised us, neither, this is Jesus speaking, neither shall any man pluck them from my hand. John 10, 28. Jesus is mighty to save. Let us trust him wholly. Preach. We may also take from this miracle a great motivation to trust then, therefore, his mighty, almighty power to provide for us as believers, to provide for us. We read, he hath given meat unto them that fear him. Psalm 111, verse 5. He hath given meat or food unto them that fear him. God's people shall be cared for and are cared for by his own covenant love and power. Our Lord Jesus tells us so and tells us to do this in Matthew 6, verses 25 and then verse 30. Take no thought for your life, says our Lord Jesus, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and Tomorrow is cast into the oven. Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? God knows our needs and is even more aware of them than we are. Mm -hmm. He shall care for his own. As the Apostle Paul tells us, Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. So sometime in 30 or 31 AD, Jesus Christ fed 12,000 people with five loaves of bread and a few fishes. Mm. If that be true, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then today he shall provide for his people's needs. Still. Mm. The Apostle Paul instructs us to look over the great work of his care for our souls as an exhortation to entrust to him also the care of our bodies. Mm -hmm. This is key for understanding how God provides for us and where we can place our faith. In Romans 8, 32, Paul says, He, God, that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that is, for our soul's salvation to redeem us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8, 32. That's the motivation where we, we are to look. That's where we place our faith. The God that gave his son for us to redeem our souls shall also take care of us, provide for us, specifically in that context, in the midst of horrible, bitter persecution. In our text, we read in verses 42 and 43 that this multitude, they did all eat and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fishes. This Jesus... This Jesus, who filled the bellies of the multitude, who caused such increase that 12 basketfuls remained, 
shall from this same abundance and this same power meet all of our needs today as Christians. We then, dear Christians, ought to be those who most trust Jesus for our temporal needs. Since we are those who have entrusted to him the far greater needs of our eternal soul. What is food to the soul? What is clothing to the soul? What is dwelling place to the soul? If we've committed to him the greater, very easy to entrust him with that which is less. Whenever we are fearful and doubting that we may be destitute in our physical necessities, let us remember that the same Christ which has redeemed our soul by his almighty power has also vouchsafed or promised to care for our temporal needs as well. Now that may not always look like how we want it to look like. But we certainly know that he will meet our needs, provide for us. God did not withhold his own beloved son from us. Shall we then go and think so lowly of God, so lowly of him, as to believe that he shall then withhold the things that concern our bodies? Far be it from us, God forbid. Mm. Second, our Lord's compassion toward men. Notice the insensitivity and the unconcern of the disciples here. Verse 35, 36, the disciples say, This is a desert place, and now... The time is far past. This is out in the middle of nowhere. It's been a long time, is what they mean by that. Send them away, that they may go into the country roundabout and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. So the disciples here recognize the dire situation. Here's their solution. Disregard it. Get them out of here. It would be too much work. To find a way to feed this multitude, we don't even have enough money. Where are we going to go? So the disciples harshly propose to send the people away fainting with hunger, that they might go and buy themselves bread. It is recognized by them that the people have nothing to eat, that this is a problem. But instead of trusting that Jesus has the solution, as he always does, and then coming to implore him to solve it, They come up with a hopeless solution of their own. Let us not. They turn to the arm of the flesh by themselves food. Man desires to meet his own needs. That's man's pride. Jesus, what does he do? He both rebukes and instructs them. He tells them, give ye them to eat. Give ye them to eat. I was just kind of read over that. For most of my Christian life. Didn't think much of it. But it is strange. Why is he telling them to give them something to eat? Give ye them to eat. To rebuke. They should have come to him. And asked him to help the people. That's what they should have done. But instead, they come to Jesus and tell him to send the people away. They're going to help him out. Help him solve this problem. To teach them that they ought rather to do all that they can to care for those in need, Jesus then tells them to provide the people with food. This must have served as a rebuke. It must have shamed their insensitivity and their sloth. Jesus then turns to instruct them by example. 
taking the five loaves, taking the few fishes that he told his disciples to go get from the people. He then, in verse 41, looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. The people are fed. Their hunger is satisfied and 12 baskets of leftovers remain. His disciples ought to have first seen that the people had a need. Then they should have gone among them to see what food they did have. Then they should have come to Christ with that small supply of food. And in faith, they should have asked him to bless the food and meet the needs of the multitude. But they didn't do any of those duties, did they? Send them away. By this time, they knew his divine power. I give them a little bit more slack, the disciples, earlier on in the Gospels. They've seen enough at this point. The dead had been raised. The sick healed. Storms stilled with one word. Good faith would have believed that Jesus could also multiply this food and feed this people. Good faith would have gone to Christ knowing that he had a solution. Jesus gives the food to the disciples. Also, this is important. That they might learn to get all their supply from ministering to people in the future directly from him. He's the one that gives the increase. He's the one that multiplies. And then he breaks it and gives it to the disciples to give to the peoples. We ought to also remember that. That could be a sermon in itself. The disciples indifferently discounted the needs of the people. But Jesus blesses the bread and distributes it to them all, meeting all their needs. Our Lord Jesus is the same in compassion and love for his people as when he passed by Moses in the rock and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. We know that many of the multitude came to him, not out of faith and love, but from some other impure motive, out of curiosity. Here's a strange healer out in the desert. Let's go see him. Or that they might have their physical needs met. He can give us bread. He can give us food. He can heal my bones. Because Jesus said to some of them after in John 6, verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat the loaves and were filled. So he's saying, I recognize you guys are still coming out to me. Many of you are here simply to get food, and that's it. Simply to have your physical needs met. Yet even so, even though Jesus knows this, Jesus is still compassionate to them. If anyone had a right to send these beggars away, it was Jesus, but he didn't. He didn't. He's compassionate to them. He satisfies their hunger. He cares for their physical needs. The sweetness of Christ's doctrine, that he is the kind, humble, and meek Savior, is adorned by the tenderness of his care for the human body. Dear congregation, let us take our Lord's compassion to heart and bring it to bear in our relations with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our unbelieving friends and family. We ought to care for the physical needs of people as well as ministering the gospel to their souls. We often fall on one side or the other. 
Many ministries, many churches do. They do much good for the body, don't really say much about the gospel. They only preach the gospel, don't do much for people's situations. We must do both, as Christ did. Now, this is all the more true concerning those who belong to the household of faith, the church, Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We may preach a sound, solid, doctrinally pure gospel. And we might be very zealous for the propagation of Christ's kingdom. But if we see a brother or sister naked and destitute of daily food, and all we have for them is to say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, but give them not those things which are needful to the body, then as the apostle James says, what doth it profit, he asks. James 2, 15 and 16. We ought, dear congregation, to be careful to adorn, adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ with a compassionate heart. With a compassionate heart. We've all seen people in the street corners or other places. They might even be preaching a very sound gospel, but their heart does not adorn. Their actions do not adorn in some cases, the gospel. Let us be determined to so say and live, as James says in 2.18, I will show my faith by my works. Mm. True. Our first duty is to care for where people shall spend eternity. Yes. That's most important. Amen. But we must not then neglect to meet people's needs if they have any. Moreover, dear believers, we may be instructed from our Lord's compassion to the multitude, that although man is sinful and often cometh unto God from impure motives, yet God remains merciful, even though he knows people are coming to him with impure motives. He does not deal with us according to our sins, does he? He does not deal with man according to his sins. He does not reward them according to their iniquities, the Bible says. Christ loads I saw this from Matthew Henry. Christ loads even his enemies with gracious benefits. Even his enemies. Sun is shining on him. The rain comes down. They eat food and go, hmm, that is delicious. They deserve none of that. They have happy marriages. They enjoy a stroll through the park and see the beauty and take delight in it and their heart is warmed. They deserve none of that. But Christ even gives benefits. He loads benefits graciously upon even his enemies. None shall be so without excuse as the unbelieving on the day of judgment. None. They have received countless blessings from God, but they have only returned cursing and hatred and enmity and misuse for his blessing and his love. It is God's very kindness to them that will stand up and most sharply condemn them in that hour. Romans 2.4 Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? That's what the Apostle Paul says. And all his dealings with men on earth. Jesus showed himself one that delighteth in mercy, as Micah 7.18 says. Jesus loves, he delights to show mercy to sinners. I am glad of it. I am glad of it, for I am a sinner who needs mercy. Mm, amen. 
Christ has been kind, even unto rebellious sinners. How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, who better knows this than Christians? Mm. Who better knows that Christ has been gracious and kind to rebellious sinners better than Christians? Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 6 and 8, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. God commendeth, demonstrates, his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. Let us strive to be like him. It's a good goal. Yes. Amen. Let us confidently preach the gospel to the lost, knowing that the riches of his goodness, when we appeal to the riches of his goodness in general revelation, providence, things people have experienced, and then the gospel specifically, his forbearance, his long-suffering demonstrated in the gospel that we preach, we can be confident that that will then draw sinners in faith to Jesus. And there they shall cast themselves, just as we did, upon him in faith unto salvation. Even we, Christians, who oftentimes see ourselves as the worst sinners to ever live. If you know your heart, if you ever look in there, you'll see it. Even we, if even we who know ourselves to be so wicked could be saved by so kind and merciful a God, so too can any and all who come to him in faith, any and all, Calvinist or not, that is true. We who have tasted and seen ought to be active in urging others to taste and see. Urging others to taste and see. With Paul, we can say, The love of Christ constraineth us to preach the gospel to lost sinners and love him who first loved us. In this miracle, we also see, third, a spiritual emblem of gospel sufficiency. A spiritual emblem of gospel sufficiency. We do not believe that there can be much doubt that our Lord Jesus Christ's miracles have a deep figurative meaning and also teach us great spiritual truths. But they must be handled reverently and discreetly, right? Care must be taken that we do not, as did many of the early church fathers, and even as many of our own beloved Puritan forefathers and Baptist forefathers did, see allegories where the Holy Spirit meant none to be seen. We must be careful of that. However, I agree with J.C. Ryle. I agree with Matthew Henry. That if there is any miracle at all in the New Testament which has a manifest figurative meaning in addition to the plain lessons which, much, which may be drawn from its surface, it must certainly be the one now before us. It must certainly now be the one before us, the feeding of the multitude. Why then does this hungry multitude, what then does this hungry multitude in the wilderness allegorically represent to us? We can see it as an image, as an emblem of all mankind. All of humanity is a large assembly of perishing sinners, famishing in the midst of a wilderness world. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans 3.23. Every human being, by nature, lies cold and dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. 
They lay there unable and unwilling to come to God. They're at enmity against God, as Romans 8, 7 says. Of this mass of humanity out in the wilderness of the world, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Humanity is a spiritually starved, dead and dying multitude in a desert place with no ability to buy themselves bread. No ability to buy themselves bread which can meet their spiritual needs, specifically. They have strayed, all of humanity. They've gone out. They're wandering. They're hastening to hell. They're lost. And like this starving multitude before us in the, par- or in the miracle, humanity is in a desperate and in a hopeless position. Unlike them, though, they're not merely in need of some food for their body, but salvation from the wrath of hell. By his sin, by his corrupt nature, man is helpless, hopeless, and on the way to ruin, is he not? As Isaiah says, in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We are by nature far away from God. Man's eyes may not be open to this reality. Many people do not see their danger in front of them, at least not the full extent. But as Jesus writes in Revelation 3.17 through the Apostle John, in reality, all men are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We are on, all of us, a steep road to hell by nature and by practice. We are all only a step away from eternal ruin, just as this multitude was a mere hour or two away from fainting under their, under their hunger. What shall be done for man then? What shall be done? This is where we can turn allegorically to the loaves and the fishes. On their own, these five pieces of bread and a few fishes were utterly inadequate to meet the needs of the multitude. But by a divine miracle of Christ, they are made sufficient to feed upwards of 12,000 people. These loaves and these fishes are a spiritual emblem of the doctrine of Christ crucified. A spiritual emblem of the doctrine of Christ crucified for sinners. In them we may see, allegorically, Christ Jesus broken and distributed to them as a vicarious substitute making atonement for them and for their sins by his death on the cross. Just as it seems foolishness unto the world to pray over a few loaves and some fishes and then break them apart in hopes of feeding 12,000 people, what could be more absurd? So too the doctrine of Christ crucified was unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Mm. So says Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Indeed, To all perishing sinners, Paul says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The weakness and the inadequacy of the small supply to be able to feed so great a multitude is evident to the natural man. Again, as we said, if all we had was 
a few loaves and a few fish. And we had 12,000 people in front of us ready to eat. Don't even bother. Of course, we can see that this is weak and inadequate. To the unbelieving, the sacrifice of Christ also seems utterly weak and foolish. What? They say. A slain Savior? A crucified Messiah? A dead and buried God? I cannot accept such teaching as that. If I cannot have heaven at my own hands, but must resort to so weak and despised a Savior, I should rather not have heaven at all, says the proud sinner. Mm -hmm. We read that those who ate of the bread were filled. So too are those who believe upon Christ, those who receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith, filled with the saving benefits of Christ. They have come to Christ in their need. They have said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean from all my stains, from all my sin. They, in boldness, that is believers, in boldness, have come to the throne of mercy and have said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. They have heard Christ speaking into their souls, I am willing, be thou clean. Thy faith hath made thee whole, go and sin no more. They believe, that is Christians, that by Christ Jesus' grace, one day he shall say unto them, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Dear congregation, that we, who have been such sinners, who have so robbed God of his glory, have so spurned his love, have so utterly undone ourselves, making ourselves poor and hungry and blind and naked, could be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Could be redeemed by the blood of Christ, could be filled with the Holy Spirit. That we, sinners by birth and sinners by practice, could be filled by Jesus. By Jesus, who is true bed. For our souls indeed. That we could be called, dear congregation, ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. That we could be sent out into a dying and spiritually starved world. To place upon fellow sinners their need and their duty in coming to the crucified Savior of the world. How how can it be? How can we even speak such words? How can these stammering lips do such a thing? How then shall we live? How then shall we love him who so loved us? Mm. We have eaten the loaves, dear congregation. We have consumed the fishes. We have eaten the body of Christ and drank down his blood, who is our very life. Christ has said in John 6, 32 and 33, My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. O Lord, we reply, evermore give us this bread. Where can we find it? I am the bread of life, Jesus says. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. 
He that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat the manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. The unbeliever would gladly eat of the bread that benefits his temporal life. But he despises to eat the true bread from heaven, the bread which is able to give him eternal life. The unbeliever will rather labor for the meat which perisheth. He despises that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give. Yet still, dear congregation, Christ crucified has proved to be bread of God which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. Even so, in spite of man's unbelief, the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of the cross has been abundantly met with believers. And it has abundantly met the spiritual needs of mankind wherever it has been preached. Thousands, millions of every rank, age, nation are witnesses that it is the wisdom, and the power of God, not the foolishness of man, the power of God. They have eaten it, and they have been filled. They have found it meat indeed, and drink indeed. The gospel, dear congregation, by the almighty power of Jesus, shall always find needy sinners, ready to be filled, willing and eager to graciously partake in eternal life. In closing, Dear congregation, let us see what hope we might take from this miracle. What spiritual, what practical lessons, what comfort, what strength, what joy. The same Jesus that was so willing to show compassion to this starved multitude. To teach them the way to everlasting life in himself. And even to meet their temporal needs is the same Jesus The same Jesus, which reigns exalted in heaven, interceding for us at the right hand of his Father. This is the same Jesus who has given us his Holy Spirit to guide us, to empower us, to sanctify us, to keep us, and to bring us safely into glory through death's dark valley. This miracle teaches us many things, but... I think it certainly teaches us the truth of the Heidelberg Catechism where we are asked, what 
dear person, is thy only comfort in life and death. Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, hath fully satisfied for all, all my sins, Mm -hmm. and delivered me from all the power of the devil. Yes. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things, all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life mm. and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I think that's one thing, certainly, that can be learned from this passage. Dear congregation, if nothing else, let us cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. More desperately and more faithfully. He, thy Jesus, dear Christian, is mighty to save and to save completely. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, we do not wish to cheapen anything regarding the gospel with much words. We wish to be faithful. We wish to love thee more. And we see even in those aspects of our heart and our life where this isn't our chief desire, that it should be. And we ask that would fully bring our hearts into love with thee. That to know thee is life eternal. To serve thee is joy undying. Please help, Lord. Apply whatever was true to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.